I have the opportunity to do something interesting, and I, I've always wanted to do this, and I don't really make the opportunity, but it just happened. It's one I've thought about a lot in the light of uh, the boundless and divine nature of the Bible, and that experiment is to preach the same text that I've preached recently, because I think you could preach the same text over and over again, and it would be boundless in its truth. And so we're actually going to look at a text that I just preached on August 30th of this year as part of our Pentateuch series. I've always wanted to do this. The Word of God is living and active. It's not static. It's inexhaustible. It's fresh every day. And one passage can hit you from one direction in one day and a completely different direction the next, all while the main interpretation of the passage stays the same. It's constant and steady. And that text tonight is Numbers chapter 22, And we'll look at verses 22 through 35 in Numbers 22. Now, the last time we were here in August, we took all of chapter 22, 23, and 24. We did all of it in one big picture. Tonight, we're going to look more intently at this interaction between Balaam and the angel of the Lord in our continuing series on Christ before his birth, the backstage before Bethlehem series. So let's reset the stage. If you weren't here a couple of months ago, Israel now is on the cusp of entering the promised land. They're right on the verge of moving forward with the conquest plan that God has given them. And now, though, Israel has just completely decimated the Amorites. They have been victorious in battle. And so two other peoples, the Moabites and the Midianites, now they're terrified of what could happen to them. So they hatch a plot. They get a self-proclaimed prophet named Balaam to curse Israel on their behalf. So for a large fee, Balaam would do some sacrifices and some pagan religious shenanigans to try to curse Israel. Balaam is offered the job by means of messengers from the Midianites and the Moabites. But God himself appeared to Balaam and warned him. Numbers 22 verse 12. Sorry, we'll go back for a moment. Numbers twenty-two twelve. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. And so Balaam said, sorry, can't do it. The entourage of messengers left Balaam. But then they sent back more. They sent higher level princes from the kingdom to make the offer again. Balaam only needed to name his price. And now, interestingly, God says, this time to go. Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. But only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. God, though, sovereignly knew Balaam's heart, that Balaam took this as an opportunity to be back in business with with the king of Moab, Balak. And so God is going to allow Balaam to attempt to sin against him. But this is all, we note, for the bigger purpose of protecting Israel from the schemes of Moab and Midian. And God's going to successfully do this because over the course of the next couple of chapters, every time Balaam tries to curse Israel, the Spirit of God forces him to bless Israel. But that bigger picture isn't our focus for this evening. We want to narrow it down a little bit. Fully knowing the wickedness of Balaam's heart, God tells him to go. But then he confronts Balaam, verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. 
And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. So here we have the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the physical manifestation of God, the son of God, and he is angry. He's angry and he's blocking Balaam's way. Now, the donkey may have been a donkey, but she wasn't born yesterday, and apparently she knew her creator when she saw him. Verses 24 and 25, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. So this time now, the angel of the Lord has stood in a narrower path between the vineyards, which had a wall on either side. And again, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. And since there was no place to run, she rams Balaam's foot against the wall and Balaam beat her again. The third time, verse 26, then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. And so a third time now, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow place where the donkey couldn't go any direction. And when she saw the angel of the Lord, this time she just lay down in the path, which makes the rider look like a complete fool, by the way, when you're just sitting there on the donkey that's on the ground. And now Balaam's furious and he starts beating her again with the staff. Verse 28. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. Now, the obvious question is, why does Balaam not seem surprised that a donkey is talking to him? We're not given an explanation, but probably the best thought is that he is familiar with evil spirits. He is, after all, some sort of, uh, some sort of uh, sorcerer. And so maybe it's not a shock to him to see something talking that shouldn't be. Balaam now goes down in history as the only man to get into a two-way argument with a donkey, and he adds to that record by being the only man in history to lose that argument. In verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. And so he loses that argument very quickly. But as one of God's creatures, ironically, this donkey is more spiritually attuned to God than Balaam is. And that's about to change, though. Verse 31, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Did you catch that? Your donkey just saved your life. You better be glad for what she just did. The donkey knew what was right more than Balaam did. The donkey knew her creator. And now Balaam is terrified of God and he's going to obey. Not out of love, not out of devotion, but out of self-preservation. The rest of the story shows that God is making certain that Balaam only gives blessings and not curses and thus protecting Israel, thwarting Israel's enemies, protecting her future until that time that she would bring forth the Son of God in Bethlehem. But for our purposes this evening, 
as we see that one of the ministries of the angel of the Lord is to thwart scheming enemies, the enemies of God, I'd like to focus not so much on God thwarting the corporate group, the enemies of the Moabites and the Midianites, but I'd like to focus on God thwarting the singular enemy of Balaam himself. It was just this morning that we saw for the very first time that the angel of the Lord acts in a role of judgment, in a role of destruction. And now, once again, we see the angel of the Lord in his righteous anger. He comes as an adversary against Israel's enemy, against his enemy. Now, we have to keep in mind that the angel of the Lord, we've shown, is the Lord Jesus Christ before his permanent appearance as a man, that God would become flesh to dwell among us. And as a man, Jesus is forever the advocate, the bridge between God and humanity because he's both. But we have to keep in mind that one of the ministries of Jesus Christ And this is the ministry seen here in Numbers 22 is the ministry of judgment. That is one of his ministries. In fact, it's an important ministry. John 5, 22 and 23, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, when we talk about judgment in this context, what we're talking about is the fact that God the Father has entrusted God the Son with the task of knowing the heart of every person, of knowing their salvation status, whether they have rebelled or whether they have, they have come to faith in Christ. And then Jesus Christ will be the one who renders the verdict of guilty and he will be the one who consigns the unbelievers to eternal punishment. And we see this task of judgment most vividly demonstrated at the ultimate judgment, and that is the great white throne judgment. Now, I took a moment here to get you familiar with the interaction between the angel of the Lord and Balaam, and so we'll have that in our mind, and we'll continue working through that interaction, but I want to have you turn now to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20, we may be less familiar with this, so it'll be useful to have that open. And what I'd like to show you this evening from both Numbers 22 and Revelation 20 is the fact that the judgment of Christ is inescapable. It is inescapable without repenting of sin and placing your faith in him. And so I'd like to show you six reasons the judgment of Christ is inescapable. And we'll just work on both texts. You can just leave Revelation 20 open though. Six reasons the judgment of Christ is inescapable. Reason number one, that the judgment of Christ is inescapable. There is no place to hide. There is no place to hide. No action of the angel of the Lord is random or coincidental. And the fact that the Holy Spirit records events in a particular way isn't random. It's not coincidental either. Look at the progression as we think back to Numbers 22. You have the story in your mind of how the angel of the Lord takes Balaam from complete ignorance to utter terror. When the angel of the Lord first appeared, Balaam isn't able to see him. He's completely oblivious to the fact that he's deeply offended a holy God and this is very similar to the case of the recalcitrant lost person. They're offending holy God every single day of their lives. They don't care. They don't have a sense of the righteousness of their maker. They live utterly, completely selfish lives, flaunting their sin in front of a God that, as far as they're concerned, is irrelevant if he even exists at all. But now the angel of the Lord goes from standing in the road to standing in a narrower path in front of Balaam to standing directly in front of Balaam Numbers twenty two thirty six, where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. This is the idea of funneling Balaam to an inescapable point. 
And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. But now it's too late. Balaam is standing before his judge and there's no place to hide. In the account of the great white throne judgment, where Christ, who has been given all judgment by his father, sits in judgment, we see the, sin, the same inescapability. There's no place to hide. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This great white throne, this is not the same throne as the glorious throne room of God mentioned 30 times in Revelation. This is, this is a different, this is a unique throne. For one purpose, the throne is great. It reflects the the might and the glory of God and the throne is white. And this is important because in the book of Revelation, all through this book, white represents purity and holiness and righteousness. It could be said to be the great white hot throne. And now the unsaved dead will have only one reality before them. God in all his holiness, all his righteous perfection, They are now before judgment and the unsaved will be forced to stare into this searing, faultless judge of their souls, the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 11, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There's no place for the earth. There's no place for the sky, which means, of course, there's no place for the lost to hide. There's literally not a place anywhere. What does this mean? Well, the verses previous to this passage, Christ is reigning in his earthly kingdom on the earth during the millennial kingdom. And in the very next chapter, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is placed right in between, sometime between those two events. Second Peter 3 verse 10 tells us, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In fact, just a few verses earlier in 2 Peter 3, 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so it seems that after the millennial kingdom, but before the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, believers in Christ will be placed somewhere very, very safe. The best candidate really is New Jerusalem, which has already been prepared for the new earth. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies burned up and dissolved. Now, I've made the case in the past, I I can't take the time tonight to do it again, but I've made the case in the past that this is most likely not a complete destruction and recreation. This is more the idea of melting down and restoring that which is sinful and recreating it into that which is not sinful. It is taking the same elements, reforming it as a burning away process, not as a death process or ending, but more of a renewal. And if you're curious about that, I preached on this when we went through Revelation chapter 21. That's not the main point at the moment, though. 
Whatever the case is, at this moment, at the great white throne, all the realities which humanity has known, they're all gone. There's no earth. I I feel sort of bad for all of the uh, people who are trying to preserve the earth. This is not a good verse for them. Now, in the midst of the place that's the sole focus of everything, of all creation, because the creation is in the midst of being melted down, the unrighteous dead will appear before God in a context where there's no more earth, no more sun, no more stars, no more home, just you and a great white throne with God upon it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single thing that has ever brought temporal comfort or security to humanity is gone. There's no home, there's no parents, there's no career, there's no spouse, there's no children, there's no songs, no art, no food, no friends, no hobbies, no travel, no green grass, no trees, no forests, no beaches, no dreams, no hopes. It's all gone. Literally, no place else exists. And at this time, I guarantee you the unbeliever has stopped believing and trusting in any temporal comforts because none of them are there. It's beyond human comprehension, really, to have everything that's familiar to us taken away. For the unbeliever, every other thing they've ever trusted in, they will stop believing in them because they're done. They're gone. There's no place to hide. I can't even wrap my mind around that sort of hopelessness. There's a second reason the judgment of Christ is inescapable. Christ judges publicly with witnesses. Christ judges publicly with witnesses. Balaam's donkey served a very important purpose in the plan of God to judge Balaam. The donkey served as a witness. In a way, it's kind of humiliating that Balaam didn't even rate a human witness. All he got was a donkey. But the donkey condemned Balaam. Chapter Numbers 22, 30. He condemned her for mistreating her and threatening to kill her. And did you notice that the angel of the Lord defended the donkey? Why are you hitting your donkey? Why is the witness important though? Why why does that matter? Witnesses are important because the wrath of God to judge the rebel is not a private event. It is a public event. And this glorifies God's justice and his holiness When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a spectacularly public event with all the surrounding towns seeing and knowing of the heavenly destruction of these wicked cities. When God sent the great flood, all who had rejected the preaching of Noah for the past century were witnesses of the wrath of God, even as they were the recipients of the wrath of God. All the earth saw. The plagues on Egypt at the Exodus we looked at this morning were all so that God could, according to Exodus 14.4, get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There are witnesses at the great white throne that we know for certain, and there are some that we can surmise, we can assume. Those we know for certain, chapter 20, verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. All the unsaved from all the centuries will witness the judgment of the lost. There are witnesses we can surmise, though, that we can assume. We can assume that all those who have been saved, who have known Christ, also will be witnesses. And there are several reasons for this. It doesn't say it in the text, but it's so obvious from other places in Scripture that I don't think it needs to say it. 
a couple of reasons. First of all, the only other place they could really be is New Jerusalem. Now, whether they're watching from the windows or somehow uh, brought in to participate, there isn't any other place to be. The old earth is gone. The new earth has not yet been created. So there isn't another place. The second reason that the saved will be at this judgment. Dozens of times in the Psalms, the psalmist cries out to God because of unrighteous enemies. And the declaration made at times is that the the righteous will witness the judgment of the unrighteous. Consider Psalm 27, verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Psalm 54, 7, My eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. There's a third reason that we could assume that the saved from all the ages will be here to witness this judgment. And that is the, the absolute desire of the saved Revelation 6, 9, and 10 speaks of martyrs in heaven crying out. And here's what they say. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There is in heaven a cry for justice. And the best way for justice to be satisfied is for them to see it happen. We understand that instinctively. I believe that all the aborted babies will witness the eternal justice of their murderers. I believe that all believers treated unjustly in this life and oppressed will witness the justice of their abusers. I believe that all the believers who died for their faith will witness the justice given to those who killed them. You will witness every vile, power-hungry maniac who ever abused his power to oppress the masses, finally come to his justice. There's one more reason that we would say that the saved are here witnessing this judgment. Hebrews 12, 1 gives a nickname to all the saints in heaven. called They are called so great a cloud of what? Witnesses. They're in heaven and they're witnesses. And so for all who would reject Christ and not come to saving faith, judgment has been scheduled and guests have been invited. To witness the glory of God as displayed by his righteous indignation and wrath. Can you fathom this? That every human being who has ever lived, whether saved or unsaved, will know every sinful thought, deed, and word of those who have not come to faith in Christ. Talk about not being able to hide. There's a third reason the judgment of Christ is inescapable. Christ will expose your true sinfulness. Christ will expose your true sinfulness. We've hinted at this already. Let's look at it in more detail. Balaam had the gall to try to appear penitent, to try to fool God. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? Let's take that apart. I mean, some of the words sound reasonable. I have sinned. Yeah, the kid with his hand in the cookie jar says, I have sinned also when he gets caught. He says, I didn't know it was you, God. And he claims ignorance. How how could I know? Now listen to what he says. If it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. Notice he didn't say, it is evil because you are God. You are the standard. You are holy. You are righteous. You are true. You are right. You are perfect. Instead, he says, if you think it was wrong... Balaam fully intended to betray God's people and now that he's caught, that he's trapped, he tries to talk his way out of it and he uh, treats God like you're entitled to your opinion 
And since you're bigger than me, I guess I'll submit. But that can't be true repentance. And we know in Balaam's case, it wasn't. Numbers 31 verse 8, Balaam is slain at the end of an Israelite sword. Judged by God for his wickedness and rebellion. This is the same sort of excuses and attempted self-righteousness that Jesus predicted would be the heart of all false believers who appear before him in judgment. Matthew seven twenty two. on that day, many will come, say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Romans 3.19 says that because of the condemning law of God, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. There is no defense. There is no excuse. There is nothing that can be said. In fact, Romans 20 says that the unbeliever is without excuse. I don't know if anyone's going to actually get to talk at the great white throne. If they do, it probably won't last very long. But I do know this. The books are opened. What are the books? These are the books that contain the record of every violation of every unsaved person. By the way, in case you're in Christ and you don't know this yet, let me give you comfort. What about your sins as a Christian? Psalm 103 verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. The only book that's about you is the book of life. And you're in it. If your book were to be brought forward and opened, it would be blank. Nothing in it. But for the rebellious, every single wicked thought, deed, and word, every rebellious attitude against a parent, against a teacher, against an authority figure all through life, every stolen item from a single paperclip at work to not giving back proper change at the store, every lustful thought, every action, every selfish sin, every hateful thought, every misplaced word, all of them brought forward and condemned. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 26 concerning unbelievers, he said not to fear them. He said, quote, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What is it that we, we crave for as citizens of this country? We crave for governing officials who are righteous and who are open and who are not corrupt. Well, trust me, every act of corruption Every act of deceit, every act of selfish motives from people who we have trouble trying to respect, all of it will be uncovered and all of it will be judged. And for the one who does not know Christ, your true sinfulness will be exposed. And no, you will not talk your way out of this. You will not give excuses. Romans 1 already has said there is no excuse. Reason number four, the judgment of Christ is inescapable. Christ is an unbeatable enemy. Christ is an unbeatable enemy. And I thought back and I wondered when the last time I've used the word Christ and enemy in the same breath. That's kind of rare, but this is clearly the case in the Balaam incident. The angel of the Lord standing in the road, he has his sword drawn and his intent is to do harm. And you recall the initial description of the angel of the Lord back in Numbers 22. The angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. The angel of the Lord is the adversary. In Hebrew, it's pronounced Satan. We say Satan. The angel of the Lord is to Balaam what Satan is to you. He is the adversary. He is the enemy. And Christ is an unbeatable enemy when we think about the fact that not even death 
can be an escape from him. Look at Revelation 20, verse 13. You can't even escape Christ with your own death. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. What does this mean? That the sea, for example, gave up the dead. Well, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What is that? That's a resurrection of both the believer and the unbeliever. Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does this mean? It means that all who have come to faith in Christ are resurrected unto life and all who have rejected Christ are resurrected to have a body with which to receive the judgment of God, with which to experience the wrath of God. And even the sea will give up its dead. The sea is the place of unburied bodies where a person's body will literally be disintegrated and spread throughout the ocean by rotting, by being eaten and processed. I mean, put it this way, a person whose body ends up in the sea will literally be spread all over the earth in microscopic form. But regardless of how far a body has been disintegrated, it will be resurrected for this judgment. You can't escape judgment even by having the molecules of your body spread all over the earth. That is an unbeatable enemy. But the end of Revelation makes a beautiful offer. Revelation twenty two seventeen. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This comes, by the way, directly from the same invitation of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. These are words spoken by the coming Messiah. Known sometimes in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord and known as our Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ need not be your judge. He need not be your judge. There's a fifth reason that the judgment of Christ is inescapable. And that is Christ's supremacy is inevitable. Christ's supremacy is inevitable. When the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, Verse 31 says of Numbers 22, he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a sword in his hand and he bowed down and fell on his face. Now this is important. In Hebrew, this describes a two-step process of prostration, of kneeling, getting on your knees and then going all the way to the ground by putting your face in the dirt. We've already seen that Balaam's heart is impure. There's no true repentance, so this is not worship from a heart of love and devotion at all. Now, what is this? This is the sight of the angel of the Lord, the Son of God, which engenders an immediate response. It's a, it's a response that can't be helped, and that response is what Paul said is the future of all of humanity, whether in love or in fear. Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Where's Balaam's pride now? Where's Balaam's scheming now? Where's his stick now? It's gone. And Balaam bows to his face in the presence of an all-supreme God. And this is not a pleasant experience. 
If you use your sanctified imagination a little bit, you can almost taste the acid that would be coming up in his mouth. You can smell the fear that would be coming out of his pores. You could see the eyes going wide because he doesn't know if that sword is coming down on his neck at any moment. You could feel his sweaty palms. That's what happens when you think you're about to die. And you certainly could hear the shortness of breath as Balaam wonders whether that's his last one. He's facing the very definition of supremacy. In Revelation 20, you notice in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the great white throne. Every major culture in history has believed that the greatest among them will receive special treatment in the afterlife. That's been across the board in history. That the earthly, social, political, and economic status that you've achieved in this life will somehow have a bearing on what happens to you in the next world. Egyptians believed that pharaohs could live on in greatness in the afterlife. Ancient Vikings believed that the greatest warriors received places of honor at the banquet table of Valhalla. The ancient Mayans believed that their kings became gods at death, so there was a lot of competition to become a king. This is a little interesting. The late Persian Empire developed a complicated system of belief about the afterlife. Here's their system. An angel kept a tally of all your good deeds and bad deeds. The more bad deeds you had, the further into a multi-level system of punishment you had to go. The lowest was called the house of lies, the hell of eternal darkness. But the primary God of all things, whose name was Ahura Mazda, yes, like the car, was so loving that it couldn't bear the thought of any soul eternally lost, so they believed that someday a Messiah would come and say, do over and take everyone to their friends and family to live in peace and harmony with Ahura Mazda. You might think those are just ancient beliefs, and yet ask the average non-Christian today what they believe about the afterlife, and generally they get some sort of separation of the not-so-good and the really good. That is still what people default to. But now, before the great white throne, all are rendered equal. Kings will stand next to their citizens, both naked before a holy God. Rulers will stand next to their subjects, both having equally offended Christ. Masters will stand next to their slaves, both having refused to repent. Professional athletes and businessmen and investors who made millions and billions will stand right next to those who never amounted to anything. Dictators will stand next to their own victims, both having never trusted Christ. Those who selfishly never did anything for anyone will stand next to those who were philanthropic and gave millions of dollars to charity, both convinced of their own self-righteousness. All will be equal before God. No distinction, everyone in the same dilemma. The most powerful men who ever lived will be in the same exact helpless position as the lowest slave ever to live a short, miserable, tortured life. The supremacy of Christ is inevitable. Let me give you one more reason. Reason number six, the judgment of Christ is inescapable. Christ gives no second chances. He gives no second chances. One thing we notice in the account of Balaam is that he is given no second chance. God knew his heart and God had already determined to judge him. Even when Balaam gives this pseudo-humble response, it's as if God completely ignored it Balaam's defense is inconsequential, it's irrelevant, it's immaterial. 
Listen to the finality of the great white throne. Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is no appeal. There's no second chance. There's no turning the page to see, oh, but then they all came back for another chance. It doesn't exist. It's final. I read this this week and it made me think about how often when Jesus was on earth, how often did he cry out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How often did he cry out? But to Balaam and to those before the great white throne, there is no call to repentance. There's no correction. It's too late. False religions try to get around the too late idea. For example, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic religion on purgatory goes like this. Let me read you a quote. The existence of purgatory is so certain that no Catholic has ever entertained a doubt of it. It was taught from the earliest days of the church and was accepted with undoubting faith wherever the gospel was preached. And then there's a long section that says that scripture proves purgatory that's so disgusting I can't even read it. It's not true. It goes on, only those souls that are completely free of sin can enter heaven. It stands to reason then that the soul with unforgiven sins are the souls of those who have not yet atoned for their sins during their lifetime, yet tried to live as God would have us live, cannot enter heaven, and do not deserve hell. Purgatory then is a place of temporal punishment for those who die in God's grace, but are not entirely free from venial, means excusable, sins, or have not entirely paid the sanctification due to their sins. Wow. What does that mean? It means that if you're Catholic, you roll the dice and you live as bad a life as you can get away with because you think you'll get a second chance. But Hebrews 9.27 says, For it is appointed to man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Why is the second chance not available? How many chances has Christ given? Three and a half years on the earth, an entire Bible, 7,000 years of history. How much more do you want? The judgment of Christ is inescapable. There's no place to hide. Christ judges publicly with witnesses. Christ will expose your true sinfulness. Christ is an unbeatable enemy. Christ's supremacy is inevitable. And Christ gives no second chances. You see why the author of Hebrews says over and over again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Soon, Balaam would be killed. His life on this earth would be done. And even now, he awaits judgment. The great white throne hasn't happened yet. He will appear before the great, great white throne. And I don't know, but I have to wonder if the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, will remind Balaam, remember me. Remember me. Now, I don't want to end with that. I want to end with some hope. Remember, we say that Christ judges publicly with witnesses. I want to go back to that little point for a moment. To avoid this judgment, to allow you to avoid this public judgment, Christ himself took your place to be judged publicly with witnesses. 
when he was on the cross that he didn't deserve, Matthew 27 says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Oh, that's the perfect son of God hearing that publicly while naked on a cross that should have been yours. He was judged publicly with witnesses so that we can simply say from Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? Covered. No public judgment for you. Your sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. I don't know about you, but the judgment of the angel of the Lord, the judgment of Christ reminds me of how glorious it is that he would be our savior. That he would be our savior. It's a good lesson to be on the right side of Christ, is it not? Let's pray for just a moment. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we have had. We thank you for the word of God that we've gotten to listen to and proclaim today. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for uh, how we are delighted to know that our Savior, who, yes, he is the judge of all people, but he will never be our judge. He will always be our Savior, our friend, our elder brother, with whom we share the very inheritance of heaven. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman hearing this tonight, a boy or a girl, that they would fear Christ the judge and run to Christ the Savior. And that this would be the moment when they receive Christ, never again to fear him, always now to love him and be loved by him. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.